This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 159. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 17 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear the story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In our last episode, Callie and Will went to Kenning Security Services, the home and business of Callie's old mentor, Silas Kenning. They were hoping that Silas could help them track down a missing van belonging to the Vampire Syndicate, which had disappeared along with the madam of an illegal brothel, her guards, and a bunch of undocumented immigrants whom the vampires had smuggled into the city. The van is the best lead Callie has to find a shadowy group of kidnappers who have been abducting people from all over the street. Unfortunately, Callie and Will found that Silas himself has been kidnapped. Someone broke through his impressive defenses, then engaged Silas in a firefight in the loft apartment overlooking his server farm. Though Silas himself is gone, the old runner succeeded in putting his computer system into lockdown, burying the machines in a set of armored concrete bunkers. Callie explained to Will that Silas plays an essential role in the operation of street society. He acts as a neutral arbiter and watchdog between the runners' guild and their clients. Silas keeps a record of every deal and makes sure that everyone abides by their contracts. If anyone fails to hold up their end of a deal, Silas exposes their crime to the rest of the street. Whoever took Silas, they probably want the information he possesses. Since they couldn't get his computers, they'll try to get the info out of him. But there's an even more immediate danger. If word gets out that their watchdog is missing, the whole fabric of street society will start to unravel. Meanwhile, police detective Catherine Catane has been pursuing her own lines of investigation. More than a month after being placed on leave for an officer-involved shooting, Kate received an invitation from Captain Rowan Shaw, the head of the elite Special Investigations Division. Shaw, an androgyne, wants Kate on their team, and they have the political influence to get Kate cleared to return to duty. Hungry for a chance to go after the bad guys again, Kate accepted the deal and put in the paperwork for her transfer to SID. While she waited for the transfer to go through, Kate received a call as her undercover alter ego, the private investigator Kathleen Kittridge. A fellow swoop racer named Lyle Delane asked Kate to find his missing neighbor, an old woman named Mrs. Roberts. Kate eventually found Roberts in the local morgue, where she learned that the woman had been sacrificed in a black magic ritual. Even worse, Roberts was just the latest in a string of such victims. There are only two explanations for this. 
Either the kidnappers have a spell they're performing over and over again, or they're storing up arcane energy for a single ritual of massive, reality-altering power. Whatever they have planned, it spells bad news for the people of Metamore City. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 17 Callie stood back at a respectful distance while Brian Summers dug through the guts of Silas's main workstation. It was the only computer in the facility that hadn't vanished down a hole when the system went into lockdown. Silas's abductors, whoever they were, had stolen the hard drives, but Callie knew the secret compartment where Silas kept his backups. Brian had the machine up and running again in less than thirty minutes. There we go, he said, leaning back and stretching his arms over his head as the login screen came up. Do you know his password? He gave me my own account on here, Callie said, in case anything ever happened to him. She leaned over and entered her username and password, then stepped back as the operating system loaded. Brian spent a few minutes familiarizing himself with Silas's custom software. Now that Callie and Will had restored the connection to the power grid, the camera feeds all came back online, as did the building's defensive systems. The hidden staircase was still jammed open, and probably would remain so for a while, judging from the damage Callie could see in the gear mechanisms. Still, the place was much more secure than it had been a few hours ago. I see listings here for a lot of servers that are offline, Brian said. Are they off-site somewhere? Not exactly. Callie leaned over the railing and pointed down to the metal plates covering the server room floor. They're down there, at the bottom of some very deep holes. I can release the wards on them, but I'm going to need some help with the heavy lifting. Brian looked down at the server floor, frowning thoughtfully. How heavy are we talking here? And how deep? For each cabinet? I don't know, maybe half a ton? And the holes are twenty meters deep. And the drives are all magnetically shielded? That's what he told me, yeah. Brian nodded. I can handle that. How long will it take you to get the wards down? Give me fifteen minutes, Callie said. I got the gents together before you got here. They headed down to the floor, where Callie had a bag of ritual supplies already waiting. Using a long string and a heavy steel stand, Callie drew a circle in magnetic chalk, about four meters in diameter. She checked the diagrams in a little spiral-bound notebook, then copied the glyphs onto the circle. She set out candles at six equal points around the circle, then lit them with a book of matches. Finally, she drew out a scroll, prepared by a wizard years ago for just this purpose. She stood at the edge of the circle and spoke the incantation aloud, clearly and precisely. The words were nonsense to Callie, but that didn't matter. The wizard who had invested the spell in the scroll knew exactly what he was doing. A flash of red fire consumed the scroll, and the flames on the candles turned red to match. An orb of light appeared in the center of the circle, then expanded outward in a ring. Callie broke the circle of chalk with her foot, and the light continued spreading 
until it filled the server room. It passed through her and Brian with no apparent effects, though her skin flushed hot and cold as the magic washed over her. All around the room, the steel plates in the floor retracted and disappeared, leaving a set of deep, black holes in their wake. The crimson light faded, and the candles all went out at once. Brian stepped up to the edge of one of the holes. He pulled an electric torch from a belt clip and shone it down inside. Let's see, he murmured. I can almost... yes, there it is. He put the torch away and extended both hands over the hole. All right, I can feel it now. There's a ratcheting mechanism underneath it. That'll come in handy. How are you supposed to get these things out anyway? I'm not sure, Callie admitted. A crane, maybe? I don't think he ever intended it to be easy. Brian smirked. Looks like you lucked out again, Ms. Linder. Callie shrugged. Like I told your wife, you'd be amazed how often that works out for me. Not anymore, I wouldn't. All right, stand back a little. If I overestimate the force involved, I don't want anything to come flying and hit you in the face. Callie retreated to the wall of the room. As Brian closed his eyes and began to concentrate, the lift door in the loft slid open, and Will walked out into Silas's living quarters. Callie went quickly and quietly up the stairs and put a finger to her lips in warning before Will could say anything. He looked at her, tipped his head in a questioning expression, then followed Callie over to the balcony. Brian stood motionless, his eyes closed, his hands stretched out over the opening. Will whispered into Callie's ear, What's he doing? Just wait, Callie murmured. A low rumbling noise rose up from the hole one that grew gradually louder. Under the grinding of metal and stone, Callie could hear the ratcheting mechanism locking into place. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. After about a minute, the top of the server cabinet emerged. Brian moved his hands to the sides and made small upward motions, as if he were hoisting the computer out of the hole. Finally, a set of bolts locked into place, and the server came to rest in its original position. Whoa, Will said. Was that telekinesis? Magnetokinesis, Callie said. Brian's a sparky. I did some work for him a few years back. Brian took a few steps back, then stooped and rested his hands on his knees. The man was breathing hard. You all right down there? Callie called. Yeah, Brian huffed. I'm fine. Just a little out of practice. He looked around at the dozens of holes across the server room floor. This could take a while. Take your time, Callie said. I'm paying you by the hour. You want us to get you anything? Brian straightened and pushed his glasses up on the bridge of his nose. Yeah, one large pizza with everything and a six-pack of energy drinks. I'm going to need the calories. I'm on it, Will said. He headed for Silas's sleeping area to use the phone. Callie came down to the server floor to inspect the cabinet Brian had raised. Everything seemed to be intact, unharmed by the journey to the lockdown bunker. She opened the access panel at the base of the unit, flipped a couple of switches, and the machine hummed to life. This is an impressive setup, Brian said. What's it all for, anyway? Callie shrugged. For the future. That's what Silas always said. And it's my best chance to find him and get him back, she thought, 
but she kept that part to herself. You've got a lot of computing power here, Brian said. Too much for one person to manage, unless it's a full-time job. Have you thought about bringing on a sysadmin? Callie snorted. What, are you applying for the job, Brian? Me? No, Brian laughed. I have a family to look after. I can help out with the tech support, but I don't have time to run something like this. He came up to stand alongside Callie. She glanced over at him, and his eyes were twinkling. But I think I know someone who does. Callie looked Brian directly in the eyes. And they're going to annoy the living shit out of me, aren't they? Brian grinned. He is an odd character, yes. But he knows his stuff. And he trusts governments and big corporations even less than you do. Callie looked up at the server again. She imagined spending the rest of her life caring for these massive machines, the way Silas did. The way Silas does, she insisted to herself. I'm not giving up on him yet. But still, if there was one thing every street rat knew, it was that you had to prepare for the worst. Is he sane? Callie asked. Marginally, Brian said. Callie nodded slowly. All right, let's give him a call. John pulled into the Serenity Arms parking garage at half-past eleven. He shut down the skimmer and reached across the center console for Kate's hand, giving it a gentle squeeze. You feeling better? he asked. Kate was momentarily taken aback by the tenderness of it. It felt like something a boyfriend would do, and John was very definitely not her boyfriend. I... yeah, a little, Kate said at last. You were right. It was good to see Morgan. And it helped me with a case, too, so that's a bonus. John nodded. I think we did more than enough work for a birthday. He leaned over and kissed her, gently cupping her cheek in one hand. Are you ready for your present now? The kiss stirred up Kate's arousal, but it also awakened a vague, discomfited feeling in her gut. I've gotten too close, she thought. I've let him get too close. She couldn't explain where the line had been crossed, even to herself, but somehow they had crossed it. I am not getting into a relationship with the freaking incubus. I'm afraid looking at dead bodies was kind of a turn-off, she said, smiling apologetically. I think I'm just going to turn in for the night. John's eyes searched hers for a long moment, but then he nodded and smiled back. Of course. Kate took his hand and gripped it once. Thank you so much for all your help today. I'll give you a call when I'm ready to start chasing down these leads, all right? Sounds good. Sweet dreams, Kate. You too. Kate grabbed the stack of files Morgan had given her, waved once to John as his skimmer pulled out of the parking space, then took the stairs and headed up to her flat. There was a small library on Kate's floor that was open to the residents' use, just across from the stairs that led up from the parking garage. It had a gas fireplace, though it wasn't lit now due to the scorching weather, and a variety of antique chairs and couches that were much more comfortable than one might expect. Miss Fallon sat on one of those chairs now, a cup of tea in her hands, the tea service tray sitting on a low table in front of her. 
Across from her, in a big, sturdy, high-backed chair, was Captain Montgomery. Kate froze at the top of the stairs, one hand gripping the banister, the other clutching her stack of files. Miss Fallon, her hearing as supernaturally sharp as always, turned her head and looked right at Kate, smiled enigmatically. Happy birthday, Kate dear. You have a well-wisher. Captain Montgomery turned his dark, wolverine eyes on Kate, his bestial face revealing nothing. I was in the neighborhood, he said. Thought I'd stop by and see if you were in. Isri and I got to talking. It was at least half a lie, Kate knew. Captain Montgomery didn't live anywhere near Serenity Arms. There was no reason for him to be in the neighborhood unless it was to visit her. She forced a smile. Hey, Cap, I hope Miss Fallon didn't keep you here past your bedtime. Montgomery smiled thinly. I'm not that old, Lieutenant. I can still stay up late from time to time. He gestured at the tea service. Have you tried Miss Fallon's evening blend? Come have a cup with me. It really settles your nerves. Warily, Kate entered the library and took a seat on one of the couches, near the tea service but out of arm's reach from the captain. Miss Fallon poured a cup of the tea and handed it to Kate. It was a soothing herbal blend, with chamomile, mint, blackberry, and a few other ingredients that Kate couldn't identify. I'll let you two chat for a while, Miss Fallon said. Just leave everything on the serving tray when you're done. Good night, Kate. Joseph? Kate stared at Miss Fallon, silently pleading for her to stay. But the succubus either didn't notice, or, more likely, chose to ignore her. She bowed to Captain Montgomery, who returned the gesture with a deep nod, and then glided out of the room, shutting the library's double doors behind her. That confirmed to Kate that this was a setup. Miss Fallon always left the library doors open. Kate sipped her tea and stared at the table in front of her. I got a call this morning. Montgomery said, from Internal Affairs. Apparently, a missing persons report was filed, with you as the reporting officer. Kate nodded. One of my contacts on the racing circuit asked Kitridge for help. His neighbor went missing, so I was trying to help him find her. Montgomery took a sip of his tea. The porcelain cup looked ridiculously small, gripped between his oversized claws, but he managed it easily enough. Did you find her? Yeah. Kate looked down at her boots. She's in the morgue. Somebody used her as fuel for some kind of ritual. Her and a lot of others. Montgomery said nothing for about a minute. He finished his tea, then carefully set the cup back on its saucer on the serving tray. Kathleen Kittridge is an asset of the department, he said at last. I understand there are things you have to do to keep up the persona, but she is not a license for you to go off investigating whatever cases strike your fancy. Especially not when you're on suspension. Kate's fingers tightened around the teacup. So what was I supposed to do, Cap? Tell Lyle to fuck off? He saved my life. I owed him one. You owed him one, Montgomery said. One I could explain away to I.A., but based on your search history this morning, and that stack of files you're hoping I won't notice, 
You seem to be suffering from mission creep. He held out his hand, beckoning for the files. After a few seconds of tense silence, Kate sighed and passed them over. Montgomery flipped through the first few records in the stack, his eyes scanning quickly left and right. These were all referred to the Lothanasi, he said. Vampire attacks. You think they were something else? Morgan does too, Kate said. She's putting together a report on it now. We think there's a death magic cult of some kind operating in the city. Montgomery's expression froze, just for a second. It was gone an instant later, covered by a mask of bland concern, but for one second Kate saw a look of sudden recognition and terror. You know something, Kate thought, and you're not going to tell me what it is. To what end? Montgomery asked. We don't know yet, Kate said. Now that we've identified some of the victims, we're going to look for a pattern. The captain's expression darkened. Not in my precinct, you're not. You are suspended, Lieutenant. Do you understand what that means? You are not police until you are declared fit for duty. And if you keep trying to act like police, Internal Affairs is going to throw your skinny ass in jail. His eyes narrowed. Unless you've got an ace in the hole that you haven't told me about. Kate shrank back in her seat. Montgomery had done plenty of growling in her direction before, but this was different. The captain was angry. And Kate thought she knew why. You heard about the transfer request, she said, her cheeks flushing with embarrassment. Cap, I swear, I was going to talk to you about it on Monday. Captain Montgomery put up his hand, silencing her. His dark eyes glistened with anger and pain. I told you to trust the system, he said, his voice a low, menacing rumble. I told you to give it time. But no, you're Catherine fucking Catane. You're a special goddamned snowflake. And if the world's not moving fast enough for you, then you've just got to find a shortcut, don't you? He shook the stack of folders in her direction. Good police don't take shortcuts, Catherine. I thought I'd taught you that. You were a pixie's whisker from sinking your whole goddamn career, and this time David and I won't be there to save you from yourself. He slapped the files down on the table and jabbed a finger at them. You take those straight to Captain Shaw first thing Monday morning. Anybody asks, you say you were gathering them for SID. Missing persons is their beat anyway. With the strings you've pulled, you'll get your hands back on them soon enough. Montgomery paced back and forth, gesticulating like a symphony conductor. You're dead set on getting back out there before you're ready. Well, fine. I won't stop you. Some little girls don't learn not to play with fire till they burn their own goddamn hands. But I do not want to see some smug IA bastard put you away for stealing confidential files from police custody. Do you understand me? Kate blinked back tears. Not at once. Yes, sir. Montgomery made a disgusted noise, turned and headed for the door. He put his hand on the handle, then paused. As Kate watched, something seemed to drain out of him. The anger, yes, but something more as well. He looked back over his shoulder at her, and in that instant, 
he seemed to have aged ten years. You were good police, Catherine, he said quietly. Give Shaw your best. Do whatever penance you've got to do to get clear of this thing hanging over you. Kate stared at him, her mouth falling open. I... Cap, I'm sorry, but... I don't know what you're talking about. Captain Montgomery clenched his jaw, then nodded regretfully. Yeah, I know you don't. But you will. He opened the door and left without another word. And that's the end of Chapter 17. Come back next time for Chapter 18, when Kate encounters a mysterious stranger and Callie meets her new sysadmin. Another character from Making the Cut returns next time on The Lost and the Least. If you haven't been to my Patreon page recently, we have a new preview image from artist Carol Foote. Carol is working on an illustration for part one of To Walk in Shadow, and I love what she's got shaping up. You can see the preview if you're a patron at the $3 level or higher. And speaking of patrons, please welcome our newest one. Say hello to Dez. Remember, becoming a patron is the single best way to support me in my writing endeavors. In addition to cool bonus art, you'll also get my behind-the-episode commentaries, cover reveals, and other fun stuff. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester to make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much. And now, the feedback. Ari writes, Hey Chris, I was content to just listen to your Metamore City stories, but the reading of Divide by Zero warranted a bit of feedback. You had said at the beginning of the first part that the story was better written versus heard due to the formatting. I would disagree slightly. Your editing of what I assume were said visual details was superb in execution. I could almost see the branching of the choices as my mind took in the flurry of overlapping voices. Well done, sir. Well, thank you very much, Ari. I was intimidated for a long time at the thought of putting Divide by Zero into audio, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. I'm glad to hear that you liked it, too. Ian wrote in to say this. Hello, Chris. I've just finished listening to episode 124 of The Raven in the Writing Desk. Being the softy that I am, the final scene, where Abby finally let go of the day her baby was taken from her, had me crying a bit. And me, a roughy-tufty biker in his fifties. But seriously, I think you had the emotion just right in that scene, and it closed off the story very nicely. Thanks, Ian. Troubled Minds was one of those stories that really took me by surprise when I was writing it. I started that story just wanting to tell a creepy horror story, with a protagonist who is a little creepy and alien herself. I never could have guessed that Abby would open herself up to me emotionally the way that she did, and I had no idea what a rich well of story ideas I was opening up in the process. Troubled Minds laid the groundwork for making the cut, after all. And as you saw in this chapter, the characters and events of making the cut are more important to Metamore City now than ever. Thanks for writing in. Hey, Chris. Uh, Steven from Northeast Georgia. I uh, went to Audible, and uh, I only saw two of your listings, Things Unseen and Urban Legends, I think. I thought there was more than that on Audible from your work. Am I missing something? 
But keep up the good work, and uh, congratulations on getting married. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hi, Stephen. At the time this podcast airs, there are three of my books for sale on Audible. Urban Legends, Things Unseen, and Divine Intervention. Making the Cut isn't available yet, because I'll need to go back and redo the audio for it, and I want to finish The Lost in the Least first. I'll put links to all three books in the show notes so you can find them. Thanks for the call. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester. Signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.